are. Good morning. My computer crashed on me this week, so I am doing something for the first time ever in preaching with paper notes, so you will have to bear with me. It's old school, and I got them wrong already. I have to say, I don't want to put anyone on the spot here, but Tyson and Diane invited a personal friend of Vody Balcom here this morning. And I have to admit, when I saw them walking in, I was a little scared talking about Christology, <laughs> thinking if somebody sticks Vody Balcom on me, I am in deep, deep, deep trouble. <laughs> but I trust you won't. All right, we are on Matthew 9, 9 to 13 uh, in our series here. And so if you want to turn there in your Bibles... Uh, then I'd ask you once you're there then to stand for the reading of God's word and we will examine this portion together this morning. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from here, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then you can be seated. And may God bless the reading of his inerrant word. So we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, um, and today we have a bit of an autobiographical portion of this Gospel, where Matthew actually talks about himself and his own uh, calling here. Now chronologically, you'll probably remember, we've said this a few times, Matthew does not organize his Gospel chronologically uh, like some of the other Gospel writers do. Matthew tends to group his Gospel according to themes, and so likely uh, Matthew's call came before the Sermon on the Mount, so we're, we're working with themes here, but chronologically probably going back a little bit uh, to his call uh, earlier on. And he introduces himself as Matthew, and we do know that sometimes God has a custom of renaming people when he calls them into service. This happens in the Old Testament with a number of the patriarchs, but it continues on in the New Testament. We know that Peter is also called Simon or Cephas. Uh, we know that Thomas is also called Didymus, and Matthew also goes by the other name of... Levi, yeah, that's right. Matthew is Levi. And so Matthew records this event using the name that he is known by uh, as an apostle, which is Matthew. And if we uh, start here at verse 9, it says, uh, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And immediately what you see here is Matthew being transparent and honest about who he is. He's not trying to hide his background. And he's also not a self-promoter who's using this autobiographical portion to let us know what a great guy he is and how useful he was to Christ. The emphasis on this portion is on Christ and not on Matthew. We probably all know Christians who, when they're sharing their testimony, they tend to be the star of their own testimony, right? But that's probably missing the point. Christ is the star of our testimony, and Matthew shows the proper humility here, showing his station of life, which, as we're going to see, is not something that was particularly honored or respectable in that time. He's there sitting at the tax booth, or what we might call the customs booth, actually, because he's a tax collector. 
And many of you probably, if you grew up in Sunday school, you heard how unpopular the tax collectors were. Uh, but he was especially, he would have especially been disliked in his particular setting. He was particularly bad even among the class of people known as tax collectors. And why were they so unpopular? Well, one, nobody loves paying taxes as such. But the Jewish people were also a conquered people living under Roman rule. And in Judea, in the south, there was a Roman governor. And in Galilee, in the north here, uh, was under the rule of Herod Antipas. And he was a puppet king who was installed by the Romans. And on top of other taxes, Herod charged a duty on imported goods. And so the taxes in Capernaum, which was a port town, were especially noticeable. This was an important trade route, and being up against the Sea of Galilee, it was also a hub for imports. And so tax collectors made their money, uh, typically, by keeping their share of the taxes that they collected. And so this frequently meant that they were dishonest people, uh, and they, they could make up on the spot how much you owed. And if you didn't have that kind of money on you, they'd shake you down and make sure that they found that kind of money on you. But, but a lot of the taxation was arbitrary. And the more the tax collector could get out of you, the bigger his cut was uh, versus what he forwarded on uh, to the empire. So being a tax collector was a little bit like being uh, in a Ponzi scheme or in a pyramid type of scheme. It was a rough profession occupied mostly by tough guys who were willing to be enough or who were willing to be rough and play rough with other people who didn't want to give up their money in a port town. So you can imagine the setting. This wasn't some soft guy with wristbands sitting at his computer uh, complaining about carpal tunnel disease. This guy was a thug. Okay? He was a villain who played rough in a rough town for personal gain. So he will have been a rough character. And so this meant the, the, the taxation system and the tax collector system did mean the tax collectors often were wealthy people. They could access money arbitrarily, at a whim, just increase the duty on whatever you're importing and keep it for themselves. And you can understand how they would have come to be so disliked. And on top of being disliked just for the taxation aspect of it, uh, now think if you're one of these conquered people and one of your own people is collecting taxes unlawfully this way or immorally at the very least, on behalf of your conquerors, it's especially frustrating because these people are also traitors. They're turncoats. They're really despicable people. You don't like these people at all because they're dishonest, they're rough, and they're traitors. And Matthew's not hiding it. He's sitting there in his own account, sitting by his tax office at the Sea of Galilee, and he would have been a noticeable figure in a strategic area. And the taxes he levied would have been quite obvious, more obvious than the taxes uh, that some others would have collected. And this is why I say, even within the subgenre of tax collectors, he most likely would have had uh, extra notoriety. With, between the import taxes, living on a trade route, uh, he was likely more wealthy and more despised than many other tax collectors. So it's especially noteworthy, given the kind of character that he will have been, that there isn't much resistance. There's really no resistance at all when Christ calls Matthew. No doubt Christ has earned a reputation at this point. Last week in Sunday school, we talked about how often our depictions of Jesus are very soft almost effeminate. And think of how contrary that is to the biblical data. This tough guy, Matthew, when Jesus says, come, he just gets up and he follows. Jesus will have had a reputation. 
This is a man that just sailed across the Sea of Galilee and calmed a storm with his words. And then he starts a ministry of conquest in the land, healing people from sickness and casting out demons and preaching with authority. The tough guy Matthew bent the knee quickly when Jesus calls him. There must be a certain amount of awe and reverence that is attached to him. And so perhaps there's enough awe and authority attached to Jesus that that is the main or the only reason that, Jesus, or that Matthew is eager to follow. However, it's also the case, we know that the Spirit is at work preparing and empowering Matthew for this very moment, for the time of his call. And so just like in our own salvation, when God calls someone, he does it for his own good pleasure and on his own good timing. The types of people that God frequently calls are generally not the people who are preparing themselves or doing things to draw nearer to God. When it's time, God just calls Noah. He just calls Abram and Moses and David and the apostles like Paul. He just does it on his timing. These men are not trying to find their way to God. They're either living their lives as normal or in some cases like Paul, like Saul of Tarsus, they're actually actively opposing the purposes of God when God calls them out of that life unto himself. So we also see here the power and the effectiveness of God's call on people's lives, like Matthew and like us. This is the God who can make dead men live. And as Chris Wold showed us last week, Christ has the power over both the physical and the spiritual unseen world. If he can heal leprosy and paralysis, he can create willingness to come in the hearts of men. This is the God, after all, who said, Lazarus, come out! And a dead man walks out of a tomb. What kind of a man are we dealing with, people? Jesus gives Matthew his instructions. Follow me. And in the Greek, this is put in the present imperative, and so this doesn't communicate just a one-time following. He's not saying, uh, Matthew, you know what, I'd like to have a little five-minute meeting with you. Can we meet at the water cooler at the back of the tax office here, please? Okay, it's not like a a one-time or a temporary follow me. This is in the present imperative. This means it's an ongoing thing. There's no end to this. Matthew, pack up your stuff and follow me for good. Follow me to the rest of your life. It's an ongoing following. And of course, given... The, the natural setting of Jesus' ministry, the following is actually also in a very literal sense. Jesus was what was called a peripatetic teacher, which means his teaching style was to walk along and to give lectures, to instruct his students as they're walking along. So in a very literal sense, if Matthew was to learn from Jesus, he would have to follow in a very literal sense, walking along and learning and talking as they went. And so when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, it is a complete call on his entire life. It means leaving his ordinary vocation and walking about with Jesus, learning and taking instruction. It's a lifelong call, one that's ongoing, and his life is never going to be the same again. And think of what this meant for him, just in practical terms. It means forsaking easy access to money. A secure government job. You've got the the force of the state behind you as you steal from people. That is a pretty good gig if you're thinking just in temporal terms. He forsake that for the sake of Christ. And this is maybe a good spot for us to reflect on our own selves. How do we evaluate our own willingness to follow Christ's call on our lives? 
most of us have not been called to make major vocational changes as a result of our conversion. But perhaps some of us are. Perhaps you are being called to change vocations. Maybe not. Serve God where you are. But if he's calling you elsewhere, be willing, be open to do that as Matthew was. Matthew's prompt obedience should challenge all of us to consider what God's calling on our life may be and to consider how quick we ought to be to obey. It goes on in verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And this is actually probably another hint at Matthew's relative wealth. He's in a position to host a party at his place to make sure everyone's well-fed and well-nourished. And he invites Jesus and the disciples, his followers, as well as his old tax collector friends. <clears throat> it's an indication that Matthew didn't go along grudgingly because he's, he's happy. He's hosting a party for a wide circle of people. He's quite happy to have all his rowdy friends come over tonight along with Jesus and his disciples. And think of what a strange mixture this would have been. You've got these sinners and tax collector people having supper at a banquet, at a nice polite dinner party with Jesus and the disciples. Imagine putting that group together. Who plans a supper party like that? But this is what Matthew does because he's, he's not just willing to obey, he's obviously joyful. He's happy enough about it to throw a party and to invite people from his former life and from his new life to spend time together in his house. The inclusion of the word sinners here is fitting with the word tax collectors because we've already seen how loathsome the tax collectors were in this society. And so the group in Matthew's house would not have been natural friends by any stretch. And the fact that they're all together piques the curiosity and the scrutiny of the Pharisees. They're watching from a distance and they're thinking, this is a weird group of people, we better go inspect that. And they do. Verse 11 and 12, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus has gained a following and a reputation as a teacher and a spiritual leader at this point, which naturally is going to invite scrutiny and criticism uh, and a higher standard being applied to him. And the Pharisees, who we read so much about in our New Testament, are frequently the bad guys of the story. But it's probably worth considering who they were and how they started. And I'm not going to do a deep dive on this. I've done that at other places. But it is curious to see what kind of impulses the Pharisees were working with. There's this fascinating period. People sometimes say that the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament is a period of silence. And in terms of biblical revelation, it is. But it is absolutely one of the most fascinating periods of history that you can study because of the way Israel is batted around like a, a kind of a pawn between these empires and what all happens there. It's a fascinating period of history. The Old Testament more or less ends up with the Medes and the Persians holding this area. But next in line to control it are Alexander the Great and the Greeks come rushing through. And Alexander brings with him the Greek language, which to a large degree displaces the natural Hebrew language to the Jewish people. And the Romans come after the Greeks Uh, and makes serious reforms in the area under Julius Caesar and then his nephew and adopted son, Caesar Augustus. And there's constant tension with the Jews living in their homeland, but under foreign rule. And their culture and their way of life is being compromised. It's being hurt. 
And then, as now, under pressure, people kind of organized themselves into different types of people. We read about the zealots. These were the revolutionary, kind of violent people that wanted to take things back by force. And of course, opposite of them are the Sadducees. These are the theological liberals. And don't we have these people today? Well, we can make, we can, hey, we can accommodate with anything. There's one great story about a, a bishop in the Church of England who, in a series of crowned heads in the British Empire, constantly going back between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, this bishop could work with everyone. And finally, somebody said, like, do you have any principles? When we have a Catholic queen, you're Catholic. When we have a Protestant king, you're Protestant. And then you can go back again. What? Do you have any principles? And he said, yes. I am very principally committed to holding my bishopric. Okay? So, and we have people like that today. They're willing to accommodate with anything just for the sake of ease. Life's a lot easier if you can accommodate. And that was the Sadducees. They were the liberals of their day. And then you have the Essenes. And many of us have grown up being familiar with this approach as well, which is basically to say, well, the world is all terrible. The world's all bad. It's all going to hell. So what we need to do is create kind of alternate communities. We need to withdraw from society. We'll set up our own little colonies. We'll set up our own little villages. And we're just going to do our own thing here. And we're just going to ignore the outside world. And lastly, we have the Pharisees. And these were committed people, committed to the scriptures, committed to understanding the scriptures properly. And they have a good start. The start of the Pharisaical movement is a good thing. It's a back-to-the-Bible movement. But what happens, despite a good start, despite good intentions, this group becomes proud, ingrown, and self-righteous. And so by the time you get to Jesus, this is such an ingrown, hypocritical group that their man-made traditions, their rules, have been elevated above and beyond Scripture. It's no wonder they're the bad guys by the time Jesus enters the scene. But they still had the cultural capital of being respected. And they tended to be men who were wealthy. And they were wealthy enough to afford books, which is something. We buy books easily nowadays. But these were well-educated people who had a certain amount of political respect uh, in society. And they were well-read. And so of all people, these men had a distaste for Roman rule. And interestingly, their self-righteousness also gave them a strong distaste for the gospel of grace. Especially for grace that was big enough to include Gentiles and tax collectors. So no wonder they go to the disciples and ask some questions about this up-and-coming rabbi who's gaining a following and a reputation in the region. And the scrutiny and questioning is directed to the apostles, which just think about that for a minute. How cowardly a move is that? Why not go talk to Jesus? He's clearly running the show. Go talk to him. Why are they asking the disciples what Jesus is up to? These guys are cowards. They're not willing to approach Jesus. And I think there's probably, just knowing human nature, there's probably a subtle attempt to draw these guys away from Jesus by getting them to question. Okay, So it's the wrong approach. Why not confront Jesus directly? But Jesus injects himself into the conversation. He obviously overhears them, asking, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's Jesus who takes the opportunity to expose the condition of the human heart here. Everybody agreed that tax collectors and others were disrespected by society. They could rightly be called sinners and no one would have registered an objection. These people were the ones who were sick with sin. 
But the general consensus, without thinking too much about it, would have been that the Pharisees were the good, healthy people. And in Pharisaical thinking, this meant that Jesus should have avoided the sinners and spent his time with the healthy. But Jesus' logic runs in exactly the opposite direction. We've seen Jesus go into dark places and do things that show he was not scared to get his hands dirty. He's touched a man with leprosy. He walks into a graveyard filled with demon-possessed men. He casts demon into pigs. And here, he's willing to share a meal with sinners and tax collectors. And it's clear that Jesus is more concerned about shining the light into the darkness than that he is scared of the darkness consuming him and eclipsing the light. And there, I think, is a word here for us and also a word of caution. We obviously want to have the same instincts as Jesus. And we should go out and shine the light in the darkness. We should have connections with unbelievers and be willing to share the gospel with them. At the same time, let's also remember that we are not Jesus. We need to be careful as we do this. We do have to watch ourselves closely to see in which direction the evangelism is happening. As evangelicals, we send lots of missionaries out to evangelize the world. And we import a lot of secular thought into our churches so that they evangelize us. Okay? Let's not think that we have been the only ones doing the evangelism. The North American church has been deeply evangelized by secular humanism. We need to be careful of that. We need to pay attention to which direction the evangelism is happening. And the course of the last few decades would show that the counter-evangelism that's happening inside the church has been very successful. We've grown up in an age with a deeply compromised church. And so we have lots to think about when we're engaging in this kind of relational evangelism. Jesus does dine with Pharisees and tax collectors, but he did so to reach them with the gospel. His care and compassion was enough that he didn't want to leave these people where they were. And we need to keep this in mind when those who want to soften our theology and shave the hard edges off the gospel use a story like this to start negotiating the content of the Christianity. Haven't you all been in a conversation where someone's trying to get you to compromise your morals and they'll use this story? Well, Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors, right? So come get drunk with us. There's one particularly heartbreaking story I remember reading as a kid. It was about a a Christian baseball player. And he was known as a Christian on his team. And everyone made fun of him because all these guys are sleeping around every city they go to. There's different girls coming back to their hotel room. And there's one guy stays faithful to his wife. And everyone's trying to get pressure on him, probably because of their own guilt, to get him to come along with the crowd. And he doesn't. He stays faithful. He stays faithful. He stays faithful. Finally, one night he cracks. He gives in to the peer pressure. And you'd think all his unbelieving friends would be so proud of him, right? They were disappointed. They were disgusted in him. Because they had seen something in him that showed integrity. And despite the fact that they were making fun of it and trying to convince him to sin, they were deeply disappointed when this man caved. Okay? We don't cave our principles in order to reach people. Yes, we reach people, but we have to be aware that the counter-evangelism doesn't get into us. Jesus' care and compassion was enough to address people where they are, but not to leave them there. And this is instructive for us as we go out. 
Just as the Pharisees used passages about separation from sinners against Christ, right? so they're, they're kind of using Bible verses to oppose Jesus. That seems ironic to us, but that's what they were doing. So today, many people use passages like this one to get us to back off from our teaching on personal holiness and holiness in the church. And we need to always be wary of any attempt to cherry-pick verses of Scripture that are used uh, to oppose full-orbed scriptural teaching. Jesus acknowledges that the tax collectors and sinners are sick and in need of a physician. See, this, this is the first sign of compromise. He's saying they're sick. They need a doctor, and everyone agrees. He's not compromising. He's, everyone agrees, yes, these people are sinners. Yes, they're dirty. Yes, they need a physician. So he didn't get into this situation by compromise. What's left unspoken here is the state of the Pharisees. They are just as sick with sin and corruption as the others are, but they don't see it in themselves. They see themselves as healthy and not in need of help from the outside. And Jesus doesn't right away directly confront their self-deception that they're well, but he does encourage them in a not-so-subtle way to think about their condition and to think about how well they're actually doing. In verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus turns his opponents to the Bible. You guys are using the Bible to oppose me. I want you to understand what your own prophets say. Let's go to Hosea and do a Bible study. And remember, the Pharisees were the ones who prided themselves in being men of learning, men of reading and understanding Scripture well. And now Christ takes a jab at them when he says, go and learn what this means. That's kind of a condescending, insulting remark. Jesus is telling the Bible scholars, go study the Bible until you find out what it means. It's an insult. And then he takes them to Hosea 6.6, which says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And the context in the passage in Hosea is God's anger at Israel and Judah and the call to have them repent and to be forgiven. And the way Jesus connects the teaching of Hosea to his own teaching demonstrates the unity and purpose of God's plan for redemption between Old and New Testaments. Anyone who has the mindset that the Old Testament is the old, angry God, and in the New Testament, this happy, clappy Jesus that doesn't have standards anymore, where does Jesus go to show these people the mercy of God? The Old Testament. He takes them there to show him from the Old Testament from their own scriptures, who he is and what his purposes are. He opens up the Bible to them. And even in the time of Hosea, when the old covenant structure is still in place, with all its ceremonial and typological laws, including sacrifices, these sacrifices are still subservient to the moral principles which God has laid down. The sacrifices and the ceremonies pointed to the moral principles and to the character of God, and yet hypocrites and unbelievers tend to get this exactly upside down. They allow the lesser things to swallow up the bigger things. They lose the reality for the sake of symbols, customs, and traditions. And this is precisely what the Pharisees have done. Just like the Israelites were known to do in the Old Covenant era. The Pharisees think that their external actions are going to make them clean and healthy. They see themselves as better than other sinners and tax collectors. But this is only because they misunderstand the nature of both the new and the old covenant. They misunderstand everything. It's not new 
And it's not a new teaching when Christ introduces that God desires the heart of the man more than he desires mere outward conformity to ceremonies and customs. And Hosea knew this hundreds of years beforehand already. Jesus is merely repeating what the old covenant prophets were already teaching. And Jesus was right when he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What the Pharisees missed is that nobody, including them, is well. All are sick and in need of a physician. And so the dividing line here really isn't between healthy and sick, but between sick people who know it and sick people who don't know it. That's the dividing line. Jesus ministers to those who were despised by society and whom everyone knows to be sinners. There's no pretenses. But he has chosen to perform his ministry among the visible, had he, as a thought experiment, had he chosen to do his ministry among the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees and the respected people of society, he would have been ministering to sick people just as much as he was by going where he went. The difference is there would have been self-deception. There would have been people uh, who wouldn't have seen how sinful they were. And in this setting, the people do know how sinful they were. And it is often easier for people on the lower end of the social scale to see themselves in a more realistic way. The blue-collar workers, sinners, and tax collectors that Jesus surrounded himself with all had reminders around them every day that they didn't measure up. They don't measure up to society, they don't measure up to the respected classes, and they for sure don't measure up to God. It's easier for these people to be free from certain pretenses. They knew they were looked down upon by everybody. They know they have nothing to offer God. It was easier for them to understand why they couldn't bring sacrifices, and therefore they must throw themselves upon the mercy of God. There's nothing left for them but God's mercy. These are the people who in the Old Testament are talked about as orphans and widows, people who have nothing but the mercy of God to protect them. These are people like Mephibosheth. Who remembers the story of Mephibosheth? Jonathan's son, one of the most heartwarming stories in the Bible. Mephibosheth, as a little boy, is dropped and he's crippled. He can't walk. He's got nothing to offer anybody. And once David is king, he says, you know what? I want to show kindness to my friend Jonathan. Is there anybody left from his house? And then he's told, yes, there's this little boy, but he's crippled. He doesn't He won't add anything here. And what does David do? Bring him in for the sake of my friend Jonathan. What does God do but call sinners for the sake of his son? We offer just as much to God's kingdom as Mephibosheth offered to David. But God is pleased to call people in. People who are not naturally wonderful and beautiful. And who naturally know that they bring nothing. And he lets us sit at his table and calls us sons and daughters. What is much harder is for the rich and the powerful to see themselves in a realistic way. Money, power, prestige, and position tends to be able to get us out of a lot of problems. And people look up to people with power and money. And it's easy for the rich and powerful and morally upright man even to start to develop a Messiah complex. But rich and powerful men likewise have nothing to offer. And unless they see this, they are headed to their own destruction. And these are the people we read about in the Old Testament stories like Pharaoh or Ahab or Haman or Nebuchadnezzar who sees what a great boy he is and then God strikes him with madness until he sees who he is. That's what happens to rich and powerful men who think they're all that. 
Jesus follows his true statement that the healthy don't need a physician with a call to go consult the prophets of old to see who is sick and who is healthy. And no surprise, the prophets agree with Christ. No one does good. No one seeks after God. We are all, whether weak or strong, rich or poor, we are all alike children of wrath. We all wage our little wars against God. And there are going to be no terms of peace or performance or sacrifice that we can offer. God is the one who offers terms of peace and he does it on his terms. His own mercy. Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And in our own setting here, one could argue that despite all of us have different backgrounds, different families, different lines of work, but I think it would be fair to say from any sense of historical perspective that everyone in this room is quite rich. We are wealthy. We go home to warm homes in winter, air-conditioned homes in summer. We drive around in cars. We have things that fit in our pocket that can communicate through satellites and ask and answer any question we could think. Think, what would King David have given for one of those? Half his kingdom for your car? Think about how rich we are. Here's what we tend to do, because we're all little Pharisees inside. What we tend to do is read ourselves always as the good guys in the story, right? You read David and Goliath, and who are we? We're David. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 you guys are reading it wrong. You're Goliath. Well, what if there's two bad guys in the stories? What if there's an older brother and a younger brother? Guess what? You're both of them. Okay? You're proud and you're a traitor. You're the bad guy in the stories. We need to start seeing ourselves realistically in the stories. We're not the good guy. We're not Jesus. We're not David. We're the bad guys. These stories are there to teach us to rely on the grace of God rather than in our own performance. Our wealth and our tools and our society have made us feel like Pharisees. We do have a lot of good things going for us, and this is by the grace of God. We should be thankful. We don't need to reject those things. We need to be thankful and have a proper spirit of reverence and of thanksgiving. But we do tend to presume on our own righteousness, and you hear this at funerals all the time. What does someone have to do to go to heaven in North America? Just die. No gospel, no salvation, no justification, no Christ. If you die, you go to heaven, right? Everybody in North America goes to heaven. It's justification by death. That's all you have to do. It's automatic because we think we're good people. We're the Pharisees in this story. And we need to learn to become humble disciples. And friends, apart from the grace of God, we will remain the bad guys in the stories. By nature, we are the Pharisees. And we think about this, even think, just do a thought experiment for yourself. Other people's sins that closely mirror your own sins... And our own sins probably deep down tend to bother us. So when other people do the things that we do, it really gets under our skin. Right? And what do we do? We justify it. Well, yeah, that sin is terrible when that guy does it. But you don't understand. When it's me doing it, there's perfectly good reasons. Right? You don't understand. You don't understand because it's me. Right? It's me doing it. Therefore, there must be a good reason. But we call those things sin in other people. We have the same attitude as the Pharisees if our hearts are not transformed by the grace of the gospel. And it may be difficult or challenging or painful to say that sin has made us sick, and it does cause us to deceive ourselves and to waste away by turning in on our own desires. And if you think you're basically a good person, then Jesus has outrightly said here, he did not come for you. If you're a good person in this room, Christ did not come for you. I'm sorry. That's his own confession. 
We must understand the depth of our problem. And Jesus says here, the sicker a man is, the more ready he is to seek treatment. And the more ready the physician is to offer the cure. So much of our preaching and our thinking today tends to downplay the problem. But this cuts us off from Christ and his ministry. He comes for sick people. That's us. And so if there's one thing we can clearly see in this passage, it's that men need to know they're sinners. This has to become a steady part of our Christian diet once again. Our preaching and our thinking and our devotional lives need to reflect the same emphases that Scripture does. We need God's law to break us so that his gospel can put us back together. This isn't some kind of law and gospel cocktail that everything goes into the blender and it comes out of some mishmash that's not really law and it's not really gospel. We need 90-proof law to break us and then 90-proof gospel to put us back together. But the wonderful news is that we have a word from Christ this morning. And that is that he did come to save sinners. And that's everyone in this room. We're the kind of people Christ came to save. And so whether our sins are the respectable sins that are treated like virtues in our society, and don't we have many of those? Things that scripture says are detestable, our society says they're good. And in churches, we have our own kind of conservative set of pet sins that are more respectable than others. But we need to get beyond all that. All sin that scripture addresses as sin is the kind of sin that Christ pardons. But we have to be honest about it. And I think we can also learn from the model that Matthew practices here after his calling. The model is wonderful. They're eating together and they're bringing together friends from different walks of life. I think Matthew has a wonderful way of getting the gospel to these people. Getting Jesus into the hands of sinners. And when we think about how we do this in our own lives, we don't run with these people from our old sinful lives so we can keep sinning with them. We keep contact with them because we want to share Christ with them. And we need to actively look for opportunities to invite people into our homes, like Matthew did. Invite them to join us for church. Engage in meaningful discussions. And so that we can genuinely apply the great truth that Jesus is a friend for sinners. This morning we sang the song a few weeks ago. I talked about William Cooper uh, who wrote, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which we sang this morning. There was a deeply tormented man who attempted multiple suicide attempts. Friend of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And John Newton just kept at it. He kept at it with William Cooper. Kept at it, sharing the gospel with him. And sometimes Cooper would feel good and sometimes he'd try killing himself again. But that's the kind of friendship we need. Gospel ministry. And I have to say on a personal note for our church, a day like yesterday was wonderful. Building fellowship out in the bush, out in the snow, getting our legs tired, pulling wood out of the bush, watching Marv command his horses was cool. Okay? That's fellowship building stuff. And I have to say, we've talked with a number of people that are new or original to this young church. And very often conservative churches have a reputation for maybe being you know, cold or uninviting. And I have heard so many positive comments from people about how warm people at Trinity have been, how inviting they have been. Okay? There's low German names, there's Dutch names, there's English names. We've got all kinds here. But the consistent report I'm hearing is that people are friendly, people are accommodating, people are hospitable. And friends, that is the way to do it. I want to encourage you, keep doing that. Keep it up. 
Keep being warm. And that's not just for in the church. That's also to bring outsiders in. Invite them to church. Invite them for a meal. Talk about the things of the Lord. When we're hosting a feast like Matthew did, it's not to go back to our old sinning ways. It's to bring these two worlds together. To get the gospel to sick people who frankly need it very, very badly. And then let's be honest about our own selves. We're doing this not out of guilt, not to make a name for ourselves. We're doing this because we too are sinners who have been forgiven by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a friend for sinners. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for demonstrating the wideness and the radical nature of your grace that you call people even like Matthew to come and serve you, to come and follow you. Lord, and I want to thank you for his example in ministering to his old rough friends, his desire to see you glorified in the dark corners. Lord, and I pray that you would apply that truth to ourselves, whether we think about ourselves collectively as a church or even in our own private lives, the way we connect with people, the way we minister to people, the way we show hospitality and acceptance. I pray that it would not be done to make ourselves proud. I pray that we would also not compromise in those situations and go back to a life of sin, but I pray rather that we would leverage those opportunities that you give us to make you known. Lord, and I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that we are saved by grace, that we are great sinners, but you are a great Savior. Lord, remind us of that today and every day. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing.
So receive the charge for this week. When Matthew is called by Christ, he is eager to follow. He doesn't hide behind the pride of false humility or give in to the despair of sinfulness. He knows he can come because he understands who he is and he understands who Christ is. He leverages his position to throw a celebration in gratitude for his new direction. Jesus takes the opportunity in this mixed group setting to give a multifaceted truth. Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. The eyes of faith see beyond the surface level and understand that we are all sick. We are not righteous, but sinful. But most importantly of all, seeing our position honestly is what gives us access to Christ. Hypocrites and the self-deceived try to offer sacrifices, but the repentant run with gratitude into the mercy of God. Our charge this week is to cultivate a sense of deep gratitude that sees that we are not only saved from our sin, but also from the pride and self-deception that tries in vain to cover that sin on our own terms. And let this motivate us to eagerly share this comfort with those around us, so we may all say with John Newton that even when our memory starts to fade, we remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And receive the benediction from Philemon 1.25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And go in peace.